0: Hi everyone, I cannot wait for you to meet my guest on this episode. Cindy Omira is not only an inspiring nutritionist, author and founder of Changing Habits and the Nutritional Academy, but her first book truly changed the way I live my life. After reading Changing Habits, Changing Lives many, many years ago, I was so inspired to change some of my own habits and life choices. And it had such a positive impact on my life and how my family and I live today. I'm so excited for you to hear from Cindy and feel so grateful that she was able to take some time to share some of her ideas and wisdom. Cindy's greatest love is to teach and enable everyone to make better choices so they can too enjoy greater natural health through their lives. By educating people on food choices, how to read food labels, why diets do not work, and how drugs can affect your well-being and vitality, Cindy empowers people to make long-lasting changes with simple and achievable steps on how to create healthier habits. Her mission through her changing habits program and products is to be the most authentic, innovative, and impactful whole company as she challenges and encourages people to eliminate unhealthy habits. I really hope you find some beautiful nuggets of wisdom in this chat where you will learn how Cindy developed her passion for natural health and helping others, how we can all be part of the healthy living solution, the importance of understanding where foods come from and what's really in them, the benefits of eating organic and supporting organic and ethical farming practices, steps we can take to help the planet, benefits of filtering water to remove pollutions the power of living as naturally as you can, eating real ingredients and avoiding fake stuff, and so much more. I think you are truly going to love this episode, so let's get right into it. Hi, Cindy, and welcome to my podcast. Oh, I'm very excited to be on it, Christina. I am so excited to have you. I've been um, researching and I've been reading about you, and um, I cannot tell you how excited I am to have you on. I um, actually read your book, uh, Changing Habits, Changing Lives, when it came came out in the late 90s, I think. 98, is that 98, correct? yeah, that was, <laughs> that was <in> it. <laughs> and uh, it had such a profound impact on my life uh, in terms of healthy habits, and we'll get into all that. But because I'm also very much into every quarter changing my habits and adding a a new one or removing an old one, and I have now a challenge that I run with the people who are in my circle, and so many people are so into changing habits when it comes to their health. So I think you are the absolutely perfect guest for, for this episode. So thank you so much. I am going to start with a question that I ask everyone. When you were a little girl, did you have any dreams in terms of what you wanted to do when you were older
1: or who you wanted to become? Oh, you're going to laugh at this one. So I wanted to be a farmer's wife and have 12 children. Oh, wow. I wanted to live on a farm. I wanted lots of children and I married a chiropractor and had three. (laughs) (laughs) And bought my own farm. (laughs)
0: oh that's funny because my dad was one child out of 11 and grew up on a farm and that looked like a pretty hard life to me so I think you madam, made the right choice
1: yeah yeah well my mum was the oldest of 11 on a corn farm in the USA and I just saw their family and I, I just saw the connection that they had and I watched my grandfather grow for the whole family and because I, I don't know it was was something about farming and there was something about lots of children and yeah but that obviously that wasn't meant for me and and of course that was a little girl dream as I got older I wanted to travel I went to the University of Colorado to ski believe it or not it wasn't I didn't get a any sponsorship for that I went and paid my own way but I, I thought I've got to go somewhere where I can go snow skiing because I loved snow skiing and I did at the university I did pre-med and while I was doing pre-med I was allowed electives and one of the electives I did for a whole 12 months was cultural anthropology and anthropology and that was that professor and I still remember his name Dennis Van Gerven changed my life forever and it was him that got me into wanting to understand more about nutrition so that's why I went from wanting to marry a farmer and have 12 kids to now being a nutritionist and married a chiropractor with three kids.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We have listeners all over the world. So uh, everyone might not know everything about you yet. So I'd love you to just give a little bit of a brief
1: description of your story and your journey so far. Sure. I was brought up in a a pretty unusual family. So mum was, you know, the oldest of 11 kids. Dad was a pharmacist and realized what was happening in pharmacy in the 50s where he as he was giving more and more drugs to the elderly and it was only the elderly back in the 50s young people didn't take any medications he didn't feel comfortable but about what he was doing and he had one patient in particular who was in her 70s came in for arthritis had one drug six weeks later with another drug six weeks later with another drug by the end of the year she was a sick lady on way too many drugs so he decided that he wanted to do something different he'd heard about this thing called chiropractic so he flew to America from New Zealand he was living in Wellington and he went to Davenport Iowa to the the home of chiropractic and studied chiropractic for three years met my mom, came back to Australia and I was brought up in well I was born in Wangaratta but brought up in Bendigo and it was his understanding of the difference between mechanism and mechanism is where we look at the body as parts so if you have heart problem you go to a cardiologist if you have um you know muscle problems or joint problems you go to a rheumatologist if you've uh, got mental issues you go to a psychiatrist so he understood the world of mechanism and then he went into a whole new world of vitalism and vitalism is where we look at the whole body the environment the connections we look at everything. We don't just narrow down. Like there are sometimes mechanism is really important. So if I've been in a car accident, I've hurt my leg, I don't want them asking me about my life, my diet, my anything. I want them to fix my leg. So there are there's reasons for both. But the vitalism was all about prevention. So that's what I was brought up in. I was brought up in a, a world of no medications. My dad would not give us anything. I'm actually 60 and I've never had an antibiotic a Panadol, a painkiller, um, an anti-inflammatory. I've never taken any medication because wow. I was told that my body was innately intelligent and give it the right resources, which I've done all my life, which is sunlight, exercise, food, connection, um, breath, sleep. All of those things are really important for giving the body what it needs. And because I did anthropology, it clicked. It All of a sudden I went, oh, my goodness, this modern life that we're living is not serving our intelligent body. We have to fake it to make it, basically. So we had to fake um, our night and days. We couldn't live with lights. We had to fake our movement because we weren't out there catching our food or growing our food. So we had to fake movement, and that's what's called exercise we had to look at the food that we evolved to eat as opposed to the food that we were being marketed to, such as breakfast cereals. So I guess it was that love of anthropology and me coming back to Australia and um, going to the university, um, which was to become a dietitian. So I finished my degree, majored in nutrition, about to do my diploma of dietetics and went, this is nothing like like I was being taught at university. So I decided I didn't want to be a dietitian because I didn't agree with anything I was being taught, which was low fat, margarine, counting carbohydrates, counting mechanistic food components as opposed to vitalistic food. And went on and did two more years of um, university because I wanted to know more about the human body, did anatomy, pathology, embryology, endocrinology, anyology I could think of, I did. And at the end of six years of study, I went, you know what? I know exactly what the body needs. It needs our evolutionary um, constituents that made us healthy, that gave the body the innate intelligence. And so I consulted as a nutritionist for about five years, got married, had babies, didn't want to work outside the home, so started writing for a paper in the 1990s, early 1990s, talked about the wickedness of margarine, and got sued by the Margarine Association <laughs> of Australia. Talked about artificial sweeteners and how bad they were for us, and and my editor just wouldn't. He, he said, "I can't publish this, Cindy. We will this. We sued by the largest <laughs> fucking company back in the '80s and '90s. I was uh, I was very radical for those days, and then from those articles, I wrote my book, Changing Habits, Changing Lives, and then from Changing Habits, Changing Lives, it went to a cookbook. And then from there, a food company, programs and protocols, an education company called the Nutrition Academy, where we teach people how to help themselves, but also if they want to help their family and their community, they then become coaches in, in that field. So, And then I have a farm now. I have my own farm. So when you know I, I was able to afford it, I bought myself a 60-acre property, which we grow cattle, chickens, eggs, We do syntropic farming uh, and, of course, the documentary um, that I did um, that did very well worldwide, which was called What's With Wheat. So that's it in a nutshell.
0: So, so inspiring. So many things we can talk about here. One is when I read your blog and I listen to podcasts you've been on, etc. there's so much of like, yes. And I always, sometimes I get in, into these discussions and I don't always have the background. I'm like, I just have to ask Cindy this. I just have to, to ask, you know, find out more research. And one, you know, it's funny because when, um, Axel was uh, probably around four and five and he went to Swedish school here in Melbourne and um, they were having a camp and they were going away for a weekend and I was with him this he was very young and um, in the morning he asked what is in those boxes and that was little mini cereal boxes he thought it was like Lego or, <laughs> or something like that he's never he's never seen it and also the square bread that you get from supermarkets he's only really eaten like you know properly made bread but I would considered properly made bread like not this uh, manufactured square bread and he was like what is what is that and uh, I always laugh because uh, he used to I was quite uh, strict um, not as strict anymore with um, with lollies etc but in the beginning I uh, I used to google and show him pictures what was in lollies etc so he will always bring his own pundits of organic blue- blueberries to parties and to this day he's never been to one of those big fast food chains and uh, his friends they don't believe him he's like 13 now and he's like I said to him actually last night I said when are you gonna go and he said well maybe I have a treat at my 21st to see what it's all about <laughs> but they were very much they're very much brought up like that and also I you know never really give them any headache tablets unless it's really um, necessary and as soon as they say headache and I'm like how about water and it's, um, it's part of uh, how I've raised them and and now they um, they always go to that first and another thing that uh, you brought up here is margarine and I read on your blog that it's quite interesting that it's still, people still eat it. And it was funny because some of my friends were away and we were talking about how we find when we live, go away with other people, how we see what kind of habits that people bought a margarine. And I'm like, who actually does that <laughs> in today's age? And um, can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I think I would never touch it. So I'd love you to, to expand on that because there might be some other people who
1: still eat margarine out there. I am a history buff. So the first thing I do when I see a new food, not from our evolutionary foods, but a new food that is marketed as something that's better than an evolutionary food such as butter, I go to the history books. I want to know where did it start? So if we look at margarine, it started back. There was some talk about it in 1800 and something and they fed it to turkeys. But the real, the margarine we see today really began around early part of the 19th century. So Procter and Gamble, who people have heard about, they're usually drug makers at this point, but they were uh, brothers-in-law who made soap and candles. And they got together and they realised that you know, they were making the candles and the the soap with lard or tallow, which would go off and go rancid. So they commissioned a scientist to find a fat that would never go off. And this scientist figured out that if he got a vegetable oil that was liquid at room temperature, and he forced hydrogen onto every bond, it would become solid at room temperature, what we call a saturated fat. So that's what butter is. Butter is a saturated fat. Coconut oil is a saturated fat. But they were doing it with vegetable oils. So they could use cheap vegetable oils, hydrogenate it, which is what they did, and they would make their soap and candles and they would last forever. So it was wonderful for soap and candlestick making. Then, of course, candles disappeared. Soap became liquid. All sorts of changes happened. And they realized that they had a pretty amazing technology. So they decided to dye it white because it was greeny black, dyed it white and they called it Crisco. And with every bar of Crisco you bought, you got a, a recipe book because people didn't know what to do with Crisco. Then they realized if they partially hydrogenated it, dyed it yellow, it looked like butter. And so they called it the cheap version of butter. Some states in the U.S. did not want it to be yellow, so they asked them to dye it pink so people wouldn't get it confused with butter. So this is like 1920, 1930, 1940. Then we had a gentleman by the name of Ansel Keys who said that saturated fat causes heart disease or fat causes heart disease, not just saturated but fat causes heart disease, but mainly saturated. And so the makers of margarine, which were Procter & Gamble at that time said, we can now call this the healthy version of butter. So it was marketed as the healthy version of butter, despite it having dyes and flavours and synthetic antioxidants. And it was partially hydrogenated, which we now know causes something called a trans fat, which is more dangerous than any of the fats out there in that it causes an increase in heart disease. So that was the 60s and 70s. And then in the 80s, cholesterol became the big thing. And so they added a plant sterile to the margarine then it became you know the thing that stopped your cholesterol going up so that was the 80s and then in 2007 I think it was front page of the paper trans fats cause heart disease and of course margarine soaking in trans fats so what margarine then did and it it can't be called margarine now because it's a different technology a different patent it's now called a vegetable spread. I don't know if anybody has noticed that, that margarine doesn't exist anymore. We may call it margarine, but if you are someone that thinks they've got margarine, I want you to go into your fridge right now and have a look. It will not be called margarine. It will be called a vegetable spread, olivio, Lee, proactive. It will be called anything but margarine because they've changed the formulation. And they did this by instead of hydrogenating and partially hydrogenating, they do it with another thing called intersterification. Now, intersterification in the early days, there was some research done on it, and it showed that if you ate it on a daily basis, it would cause a pre diabetic state. Now, look at what's happening with diabetes and if you're someone who is consuming one of these vegetable and i don't care what it's made of whether it's made of olive oil or canola or vegetable or whatever they're making it up it's still got the same technology which is intersterification which includes some hydrogenation but has lots of other things they also add the flavors the colors everything So if it's causing a pre-diabetic state or we have this even a small amount of research that shows this and we understand that vegetable oils are laced in usually glyphosate or other chemicals because they're all monocultures, they're expressed or expelled out of the seed using solvents and all sorts of other things. You are eating a completely synthetic food. In actual fact, if you take that food, what you think is that food, and you put it in your cupboard and forget about it for 20 years, it will still be there. Nothing will happen to it. It will just stay there as it is because it's a plastic. It is not something that any animal wants to eat, a cockroach, an ant, nothing. So if those guys don't want to eat it, they've probably got a little bit more brains than we've got sometimes. You see the food manufacturers are masters of making something look like food, taste like food, smell like food but not be food. They're masters at it and, and this is one that they've done an incredible job with and so people are fooled by marketing and advertising to believe that it's good for them. And, and to me it would be one of the worst things that we can consume, number one because it's a vegetable oil, number two because of the processing and number three because of all of the additives um, that have to be added to it to make you think that it tastes like butter. Crazy, crazy. In your
0: book, uh, Lab to Table, you urge people not to be lab rats for the food industry as uh, uh, experience with uh, counters of additives, colors, preservatives. So, how do we then break the cycle of mindless, unhealthy eating?
1: Yeah, and it, it is a cycle and a habit. And the reason I, I wrote Changing Habits, Changing Lives is I said, just change one thing a week. And at the end of the year, imagine you have changed 52 things. But it might be replacing your salt. So going away from white refined salt, which has got anti-caking agents, only sodium and chloride, and it has free-flowing agents. So it, it may have a bleach because it's white. And go back to your old-fashioned salts, back to the salts that aren't refined, that don't have anti-caking agents that you can't leave in a pig, you know, a salt pig. You have to put it into a container with a lid on it. So go back to those old-fashioned salts. The same with sugar. Instead of eating refined white sugar, which is 99.6% sucrose and 0.4% ash, which means that beautiful sugar cane that has grown from the ground with lots of minerals and vitamins and antioxidants and all of these wonderful things in it is all stripped out of it and you have a pure, white, refined food with nothing else in it but the sucrose, which is glucose and fructose. Go to the one that hasn't been refined. Like there's rapadura, there's sucanant, there's jaggery. There's all sorts of, and they're all, by the way, the same sugar, just comes from a different country. It's just a like a I think a patent that each country has pulled out and so it's called different things and at changing habits we sell Rapadura because we buy it from the country that calls it Rapadura so it's just these little changes that we can do what about your breakfast are you eating those boxed breakfast cereals look and I explain what's in them and um, you know what, we need to go to? What kind of breakfast? So your question to me is, you know, how do we do this? So we do it bit by bit, habit by habit. But if you are in a crisis, that would be probably very slow for you to do those changes. And it's almost like you need somebody to come in and help you redo your whole pantry, show you where to buy your food, what's the best farmer's market, where do I get my meat, my fruits and my vegetables. And basically you reinvent your whole kitchen and you get single ingredient foods in so you would get your fruits and vegetables your meat your dairy your chicken your fish your spices your herbs your flowers your grains you'd get all them in separately and no more boxes everything's in my pantry is in glass jars I buy everything as a single ingredient and then from there you can make thousands and thousands of incredible healthy recipes, remember the quality of the ingredients will be the end result of the quality of the food that you're consuming and therefore the quality of your health. You put terrible ingredients in. So I can make a chocolate cake with organic chocolate, let's say, and I'm going extreme here. So with organic chocolate, organic butter, and organic flour. And if I'm if you're gluten free, then we'll go um, different types of flours, a mix of flours, or even some seeds or nut flours some rapadura sugar, some incredible sea salt. I can make a, an eggs, an organic free-range eggs, and I know the farmer that has made that for me. So by doing that, I become a solution to climate issues that we're now seeing, where we are rubbishing the planet, we're putting chemicals on the land, we're destroying um, the ecology of the soil, therefore the, we're destroying everything. So when I choose to make a chocolate cake with those ingredients, I'm the solution. I'm not the problem anymore. Or I can go to the supermarket and get a packet of chocolate cake that all I have to do is add water and magically it becomes a chocolate cake that's got colours and flavours which are probably as a result of synthetic biology or some chemical reaction, not even real cocoa but cocoa flavouring, flour that is grown in a monoculture where they've used you know, many chemicals in order to grow it and heaps of water to grow it because the land is so devoid of nutrition and ecology, it can't hold water anymore. So and and then I've got plastic around that. And then I've got a package around that. And that's probably been flown from around the world. So I, I can choose to, to do that. But that makes me part of the climate problem the health problem that we now see and as I always quote my beautiful Natasha Campbell McBride I just love that doctor she's in England and she wrote a book called gut and psychology syndrome she said it's time for us to get back into the kitchen to feed and nourish our family to heal this nation because it is not going to happen in a doctor's surgery yes crisis care definitely you go to the doctor's surgery but if you want health we have to, number one, feed ourselves properly. Number two, when we get healthy, feed our families properly. And then number three, tell our community and be part of that solution rather than part of the problem. And I know I, I took that a long way. <laughs> I took that um, further than let's just change our habits. But I see us as humans, as individuals, to be part of this This whole thing. So tell us a little bit about why we should choose organic food. Organic is a really good start because it means that they are probably not using the chemicals that are used in conventional agriculture, what we call conventional agriculture today. But organic is just part of the solution. Uh, I believe that we need to also look at farmers that are doing regenerative farming. And regenerative farming is where they are preoccupied with the soil. They want to get the ecology of the soil right. When the ecology of the soil is right, then the mineral base is incredible. And when they grow food, they grow food that is strong and healthy to resist pests and disease. Therefore, the need for chemicals get less and less. So organic doesn't necessarily mean chemical-free. It just means they're allowed to use other chemicals. But they still you know, they're still doing a better job. So for me, it is about looking to your farmer, going to your farmer's market, understanding how they farm, their passion of the land, knowing that they are not using Roundup and Dicambo and pacquat and all of those other ones that are out there that are used on our foods or around our foods or near our foods on a, a regular basis. So organic is one, regenerative farming is another biological farming and biodynamic farming. These are all under the same umbrella. By the way, there's also permaculture, syntropic. These are all under that umbrella where the the farmer is really interested in his soil. If his soil's right, his, his animals and his plants are fine, and they don't need intervention in the way of pesticides or insecticides or herbicides or whatever it is that they're giving the plants and then the animals don't need to have all of the antibiotics and all of the drugs that they seem to be giving animals we, we our farming practices are very mechanistic this happens our reaction is to do this rather than to question and observe and find out what's happening in the environment so i'm at an agricultural conference at the moment in aubrey Wadonga and I listened to the first speaker and I thought, he's speaking nutrition. He's speaking vitalistic nutrition but in a farming manner. And and that's what I love is I find that when we look at every stage of our life and every part of our life, can we change it to be more vitalistic? What are we spending our money on? What are we investing in? Are we investing in companies that are destroying the planet? So, for instance, is your portfolio got DuPont and Bayer and... Um, Johnson and Johnson, who are all known to have lawsuits against them for destroying the planet knowingly. They know it. It's, it's gone through the law courts. It's, there's evidence out there that they've done this. So I'm very much about ethical in every way, organic, biodynamic, syntropic, whatever it is, that we do it in every stage of our life, not just in our food habits, but in, you know, in what, what we choose to buy you know, and and who we choose to buy from. For instance, you, Christina, I love Kiki K. you know, Um, and I love going in and reading all your, I think they're diaries or like the wellness book and visioning um, what you want for your life. This to me is we're helping the planet. We're not destroying the planet. We're helping humans. We're not destroying humans. We're helping human mental health and physical health as opposed to destroying that. And right at the moment the chemicals are being sprayed on our agriculture the medications that are being given to people mentally and for mental and physical things are not helping their health they might be helping in a crisis but they're not helping their health so when we buy organic regenerative we're actually being part of a solution rather than part of the problem and that's what i want to be i want to be part of the solution i want to you know i might be only one person I'm one person who talks to one person. You're one person that may talk to thousands of people and collectively we'll all realise that we have to change.
0: Yeah, I could not agree more. How about water? I'll tell you a funny story. So I've always been... um, in sweden we have pretty good waters but um, and we we don't allow chlorine etc but uh, it's not perhaps the case where i'm living right now and i always filtered our water and one morning at 3am my daughter woke me up and she was thirsty and i was so tired so i said to her, she was probably 3 or something and i said just go and get some tap and she said are you trying to kill me <laughs> i said it's fine most of australians drink tap water so I think you'd be fine just <laughs> to have you know two mouthfuls but it was so funny that you know she's she was she was like are you trying to kill me but for people who are perhaps not aware and I think it all starts with awareness in terms of what we eat and what we put on our bodies in terms of skincare but but water so what can people do to kind of is it just getting a because not everyone um, own a house that could perhaps change everything in terms of of having water filter for everything where where should people start with like a jug or or in the on in the sh- on the showerhead. So, what is your thought on that?
1: Yeah, look, there's there's many levels to this. Like my daughter's about to have a baby, and she's putting a system at the very head of the of the house where everything that comes through the house is completely filtered. And she's chosen to do that because I've just bought a home. We have a big filter system under our sink, so everything that we drink we know is is basically demineralized. Of well, I shouldn't say demineralized, but all of the fluoride and the chloride, which are minerals are taken out and any pollutants that are in the water and you have to remember if people are spraying it on the land it's going to end up in the water. So if you're someone who sprays you know roundup to get rid of dandelion in your in the middle of your concrete or something um, instead of going down and picking it up, then that is going to end up in the waterway because it's water soluble. So, not only that, but um, DuPont, who um, I've just written an article about their Teflon and the chemicals that they spilled into a huge water table and have absolutely de- decimated the health of a community. So, that chemical alone that I'm talking about has been found in 99.7% of humans on the planet as well as babies. So if we can eradicate that from the water that we're drinking and we're putting into our food and doing everything with, then hopefully we'll be that 0.3%, you know, if, you know, if, if we do the best that we can for our families. But this is what is happening is that Big corporations and companies don't care about our health. They care about profits for their shareholders. They care about what they're doing, and so we then have to take that into consideration and decide what we are prepared to spend on a water filter. So, there are not only water filters that I've just talked about—the one at the head of the house and the one under your sink—but there are wonderful ones here in Australia. Um, Zarsen is one that I love, but there's more out there. I'm just—I've just got that name in I think it's a good one. And so you just put the water in the container, combining glass, not plastic, which is wonderful, and it filters through. Does it get rid of everything? Perhaps not, but it gets rid of a lot. And that's what we want to do. We don't want to put that into our body. We don't want our body to have to deal with it. We want a filter to deal with that. And then when you're drinking clean clean water, it's a really good way of hydrating. But the best way of hydrating is Because our water isn't energized the way it used to be, what I I do is I get an eighth of a teaspoon of salt, good quality salt, and I usually use my seaweed salt, but I get an eighth of a teaspoon of salt and 500 ml of water and I I energize it in my body. So the salt and the minerals changes the osmotic pressure of your body and um, allows you to hydrate your whole body. Instead of a lot of people, I notice they drink water and half an hour later they're in the toilet peeing the whole lot out. Because it hasn't hydrated their body, you've just used your kidneys to filtrate it and then it goes back out again. So we want to hydrate our body. If you are drinking lots and lots of water and peeing heaps, you're not hydrating, you're just being a filter system. So use that salt and water balance um, in order to make sure that you are hydrating your body and not just being that filter system (laughs) that you should have done, you know, with something else. And the other thing that I think people need to realize is that. You know, there's this whole narrative around you should be drinking, you know, three litres of water or a litre of water or whatever that, that narrative is. But number one, water's in your food. Whenever you drink a high water content food, such as fruits and vegetables and salads and greens and those types of foods, or you've hydrated grains or legumes, then you are drinking water within your food. If you're eating bread and biscuits and and crackers and those and those types of foods they're not hydrating but then not only are you drinking that water from your food when you eat good quality food and you eat fats and proteins and carbohydrates in good quality your body has a way of using those three macronutrients digesting it putting it into the cell into the mitochondria And with the help of oxygen and the food that you consume, you make energy, ATP, which is is what our energy unit is called. But as a byproduct, and I don't know if it's a byproduct because it's a product our body needs, you will make carbon dioxide and water. So you're actually making this incredible water called low deuterium water that will hydrate you and your cells by the food that you consume. So this narrative that you should be drinking three litres of water every single day is, to me, for people who are not eating good food, they're the ones that are going to need it. But if you're eating good food, you will find your need for water decreases and your body will signal to you, hey, I need some water. You know, I'm sure our, our beautiful ancestors had no idea they were drinking three litres of water or 500 ml of water every day. They just knew how to eat. They knew the ingredients a body needed in order to be healthy sunlight is all part of this sleep movement all of this was important for our our water balance so I know that was a long-winded question when all it was was you know should we drink filtered water but people don't realize the body makes its own water and by eating the right foods your hydration increases and your need for water decreases
0: Love that. Thank you. That's a great, great answer. I love your documentary about wheat, and we won't have time to go into the whole history why you did that, but its I'm going to link it in the show notes so people can actually watch it because I absolutely think everyone should watch that. But for anyone who are bread and pasta lovers out there, because I often hear that when, we, when uh, we talk about gluten and wheat, what is your recommendation for people to kind of keep that in their diet but still get rid of as much wheat as possible because sometimes when i look at gluten-free breads there's so much other bad things in there so you know what where do we go to make sure we
1: we eat the right thing yeah you're you're so right most it's so funny I'm, i have a friend who's a medical doctor and she has ulcerative colitis and i said have you tried to go gluten-free she said yeah but it didn't work and i said but did you eat gluten-free products? And she said, yeah, eat gluten-free bread, gluten-free pasta, gluten-free cookies, gluten-free cookie crackers. And I went, ah, and there lies the problem. So because gluten has become such a problem, but I don't know if gluten's the problem or glyphosate is, which is used in the pre-seeding of wheat as well as the harvesting of wheat. They they dry the wheat out with it. So, I don't know if gluten's the problem or glyphosate's the problem. So, when um, I had my problem with wheat, when I realized I was having my problem with wheat, and that was in my 50s, and when I went off it, I have to tell you, I felt incredible. And, and people will watch this in the documentary the difference it made for me to go off it. I treated it a little bit like when I became a vegetarian as a 13 year old. I didn't have fake cheese, fake egg, fake meat, fake chicken, fake everything because it wasn't available back then. I just chose that I just wanted to be a vegetarian. I told my mom, "I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to become a vegetarian." And I did that for 16 years. And I say the same thing for people who take wheat out of their diet or gluten out of their diet. I, I just say, don't eat the fake stuff. Just eat the stuff that you're allowed to eat. And we don't have to eat grain or wheat to be healthy, even though the dietary guidelines believe we do, but they've proved to be disastrous in the last 40 years and that they've fattened and sickened a nation in here in Australia and around the world, if you look at all the places with dietary guidelines. So you don't have to have grain to, to be healthy. If we look at cultures around the world that never touched grain yet lived 10 decades, So we can see the Maasai, the Katavas, the Himbas, the Inuits, they all lived, as long as they passed the age of five, they all lived to uh, like into their 80th and 90th years and healthy. They didn't live sick like we do in the Western world with chronic disease. So that's, that's my thing when somebody says to me, oh, I'm, I'm a celiac or I'm gluten intolerant or I have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, I go, well, just don't eat it. Don't even look for a substitute. But if you're a great cook and you use real ingredients in order to make a bread that has no bad ingredients in it, then by all means do that. There are a few manufacturers around, um, Primal Alternative, which is a home-baked bread company. And when I say home-baked, it is made in somebody's home, in your local community. Even though they're not organic, they do have some excellent ingredients in their gluten-free breads. So that's, you know, that's one. And there are other ones out there and there's bakers out there that um, have an incredible love for this. So you need to read your ingredients. That's number one. And if there is a number, a colour, a flavour, a starch, a binder, Um, anything like that in it, just put it back, put it back, don't use it, get it, get rid of it, you know, and, and find one that's out there that that does. And I guess that's why I started the Nutrition Academy was to teach people in communities all over the world about this and how they find the right person in their area for the meat, the fruits and vegetables, the breads, the pastas, whatever else is out there. That they find them and then they're able to help their community, and because they they get really good at asking the right question to the farmer or the producer. Um, there's this a wonderful producer at Kiwana Market. So I'm, I live up in Queensland and we have a fabulous fabulous farmers market. And there's this one um, producer there that makes noki with sweet potato and potato. And and often if you look at noki in the freezer department of your supermarket, it's like the who's who of additives, preservatives and flavourings and colours and acidity regulators. But they have figured out how to make gnocchi with real food that's gluten-free, that tastes amazing. So this is what we have to do in this day and age is that we have to really question the people that are not only producing our foods in agriculture but also making things like gnocchi and breads and gluten-free, healthy products.
0: In your book... Chapter one, start your day right. I love that. I'm a morning person. So love you to talk a little bit about that, how people can start their day right. Well,
1: in the book, I talk about food. My day starts very early. I'm a, an early bird riser. Now, let me make everybody realize that there are early bird risers and there are late risers. And if you're a late riser and you do really well at 11 o'clock at night as opposed to four or five in the morning, then... That's a genetic adaptation. So, when we were tribal people, we needed people to be able to get up early to protect the tribe or stay up late to protect the tribe. So, we know that the genes behind this, and this is, you can get this in a book called Why We Sleep. It's a brilliant book. Is that there are a percentage of the people that are early risers and there are a percentage that aren't. So, don't think you have to become an early riser if you're not. But this is, I'm an early riser. I love to get up early. I'm up at, usually 4.30 in the summer, but in the winter about 5.30. It all depends on light and I live in Queensland so our, we get light very quickly. Um, so I meet a bunch of friends and we do a 40-minute on-the-beach breathing meditation. It's guided. We do the same one every single morning. Then um, we strip off our clothes, leave our bikinis on, and we swim 1.2 kilometres in the ocean Yes, I'm in Queensland. The coldest it gets is 18 degrees Celsius, so I'm not in Melbourne, but I do swim in Melbourne when I'm down there in the winter with my brother um, in the bay. <laughs> and I know how cold it is, but I tell you what, I feel incredible. And then um, I, I have a long black and I do the crossword because I don't know why it's just something I've, I love to do as the crossword, the Australian crossword at my local coffee shop. Then I go home and I prepare for the day. So breakfast is usually made. I do not have a breakfast cereal box anywhere near my house. I love cater. That's a a mix of foods that I just um, mix up. So cater stands for coconut, almond, date and apple. Sometimes I add ginger, sometimes I add banana and I just chop it up and it's in my recipe book if anybody wants to know about it. And then I add yogurt to it and that's my breakfast. I often don't eat that when I'm at home, I will put it in a container and take it with me to work. And then my lunch, my lunch is usually leftovers. So I'm making my lunch as well. This is if I'm going to work. So I'll put usually a, a bed of lettuce and leftover meat and vegetables from the night before. I always make more. I've always got mayonnaise, pesto, hummus and baba ghanoush because I grow eggplant <laughs> when the eggplants are, are you know, in season I will make lots of baba ghanoush. So I'll make those four things and I'll add mayonnaise and pesto sometimes, mayonnaise or pesto and hummus sometimes. So that goes on top of my salad, meat and vegetables as a as a cold salad. And then that goes in my esky. I've usually made a tea. So I'll um, put in a thermos, um, a herbal tea, and that's it. That's, that's my day of eating until I come home And because I don't have kids at home, I've just got my husband and I, I'll either say to my husband, I don't feel like dinner. What would you like? And I'll usually make up steak and vegetables for him or chicken and veg or fish and veg or whatever he feels like. And then it's that leftover for lunch the next day. Um, Or he might be out in the barbecue already cooking something, sweet potato or corn or something like that with his, his meat. So my morning routine is to make sure that I have gratitude for the day, that I see that sunrise, that I earth my body, that I nourish my soul, and I do everything in that morning. And then I get home about four, usually from work. I'm fortunate, I I can leave when I want, I'm the boss, but I like to get home about four and I put my walking shoes on and I walk for about an hour just to get my head clear of my work and everybody that's at home that's got kids is probably going, oh, she's got the life. But I had kids (laughs) Um, and I'm about to have grandchildren. So I'm sure my life is going to change. So I just want to tell you that's my life in the morning at the moment. Mm, I love that. And I'm a morning person as well. And I actually, I
0: didn't used to be a morning person, but I, I now love my morning so much that I will do anything to not miss it. So if I don't sleep well, I do miss it. But most of the mornings I'm up by quarter to five and I just love it so much that it's, it just becomes part of my life. I prefer that than, um, you know, and I go to bed early and I'm a quite boring person. I go and read and I, I um, love my mornings. And seeing the sunrise I think is such a magical part of the day and I just want to see as many as I can during my lifetime.
1: It is so important. We don't realise that in our anthropology and our evolution Seeing that sunrise was a part of our life every day and it actually stops the production of melatonin, which is the thing that puts you to sleep, and it opens up the production of serotonin and dopamine. So it's key to your biochemistry, absolute key. And if you don't see the sunrise because you're a shift worker or because you're a late person, you just get outside, see the sun when you see it. So that sunshine will indicate to your pineal and your circadian rhythms that it's ready to wake up, be alert, do different things rather than slow your brain down and put you to sleep and put you into dreamland. I think you have a wonderful attitude about seeing as many sunrises as you possibly can.
0: This has been such an amazing um, conversation and I could talk to you forever but I have a couple more quick questions and then we will finish up. If you could give one piece of advice to the next generation to help them live their dream life, whatever that
1: is for them, what would you say? Dream big, have a attitude of gratitude, make sure that every purchase you do is a solution not a problem. And that I, and I mean that in every way in food and clothes and carpets and everything that you do just make sure it's a solution. I'm a manifester I I've been doing manifesting for a long time. And I think the understanding that there is this um, area called the zero point field. And the zero point field is a place where thoughts go. So if you think bad thoughts, those thoughts go there and they return to you in another version. If you think good thoughts, then it returns to you in a in a in a good version and when people get this understanding and this is not me just making this up this is quantum physics we know that this happens you want a good life have great thoughts have an attitude of gratitude and make sure you look after the planet and by looking after the planet you'll look after yourself look after number one and then you can look after everybody else love that i could not
0: agree more I'm such an avid reader, so I'm always interested to know, do you have a favourite book and why? And I'm sure you have plenty, but if there's one, what
1: would you recommend? Look, there's been so many books, but this is a book that I read every year. It's called Mutant Messages Down Under, and it's by a lady by the name of Marlo Morgan, and it is about the Australian Aboriginal culture, and it is incredible because I feel that their culture most people have no idea about it. And if you went to an Australian school, you would have learnt that they were primitive. But I believe that their culture was one of the most sophisticated in the world in that they knew how to heal in a 24 hour period. They knew how to find, they manifested by the way, they manifested their food. They had an attitude of gratitude. They had incredible, incredible insights. That really blew my mind and the reason I read it is that every time I read it, wherever I am in my life, there's a chapter that talks to me or speaks to me. It's quite incredible, whereas I didn't realise it the year before. So that's number one. It's an old book. It's from the 90s and I do love the Australian Aboriginal people and their culture for what it has taught me. The other one is Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe. So this is an Australian professor who again, wrote about the Australian Aboriginal culture and their knowledge of agriculture, their knowledge of food, their knowledge of water sources. So because I love, you know, I want to be a farmer and have 12 kids, I have a love of the land, a love of agriculture and a love of cultures, not just agriculture but a love of culture. So the more I learn about this incredible land and the incredible people that lived on it for over a 100,000 years, the more in awe I am of this land and that it will sustain us if we treat it right. Fantastic. I have not read any of those books, so
0: I'm definitely going to add them to my list, my list and I will also add links in the show notes. So thank you for recommending those. Thank you. I would love to know if you have a favourite
1: Kiki K product or a favourite stationery product. I remember being given one of your wellness uh, diaries, I think it was. I loved that one. I just loved it. I love the material and the and the the hardness of the cover. So I, I remember having that. When I go in there, I love your planner. I absolutely love your planner. Let me see. What else do I love? I don't know. I go into your store and I just look. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> Thank you. you. Look at your what you've got in your ideas, and if I like it, I pick it up. Like your um, the things I put on my fridges. One of those stores it makes me feel good. Yeah, a lot of
0: people actually say that that they often come to us at lunchtime just to feel good, and I absolutely love that. But we our purpose is to inspire people to live their best lives. So it's very nice to hear up that you think that. So thank you. The last question is if you were to give yourself some advice as a younger version of you, so maybe say in your late teens, what advice
1: would you give yourself knowing what you know now? That the universe has my back and that it will do the best thing for you. It's not here to give you a life that's horrible. It's here to give you the best life you could ever have. And trust what's happening. So I was just talking to my son today. It's quite funny. And he was a bit upset because 20 acres close to us, we thought we had to work on. Just to, We were going to lease the land to put more cattle on. And he found out today that the girl didn't like what he did with regenerative farming. She doesn't know anything about it, but, that you know, that's where it was. And I said, honey, you know, there's a, a higher reason for you not getting that 20 acres. You don't know what it is at the moment, but the universe has your back and whatever that is, you will know at a later date. So just trust in the process and know that, You know, it's there for you. It's there to make sure that everything that you want to do will happen, but it might happen in a way that you don't expect.
0: Love that. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing that. I could not agree more. And also thank you for first all what you're doing to the world and to inspiring us to eat better and to make the world a better place by choosing the right thing so uh, I cannot wait to do your um, course in nutrition because that's part of one of my dreams and um, it just hasn't been the right time but it's definitely on my list so I will be one of your students soon as well and I will link that
1: up to anyone else who might be interested in that as well Oh, I would be honoured for you to be there. That would be absolutely wonderful. I look forward to um, seeing you there. And I'm also honoured to be on this podcast and I will love to come back. So just any time, let me know. Fantastic. Thank you so much.
0: Wow, I hope you loved hearing from Cindy as much as I loved speaking with her. She has truly helped me to make better choices and make positive habit changes in my life, so I hope you have also been able to take some inspiration from this episode for your own life. I love the idea of making small changes to ensure we are living the best we can, and as Cindy recommends, changing one at a time is really simple and proven way to start. With this in mind, I have started a new challenge for this quarter, while well, I'll be choosing one habit to stick for 66 days, starting on the 1st of April, and I would love you to join me. Don't worry that you are listening to this after the 1st of April, you can join anytime. Please just follow the links in the show notes if you'd like to sign up, or you can just go to your yourdreamlifestartshere.com. I will be doing a new challenge every quarter and be in there posting and cheering you on. I will also post tips and tricks on how to stick to a habit, as well as inspiration and quotes to keep us all motivated. And each quarter, there will be an opportunity to ask me questions you may have. If you have any questions at all about habits, please post them on my Instagram at Christina Kiki K. We have also included links to all the wonderful resources Cindy mentions in this episode in the show notes as well. We have so many more inspiring guests lined up in the coming months, so please remember to subscribe so you don't miss any. And don't forget to tell us what you thought by leaving us a review. I love hearing from you and I'm so grateful for all the comments. So thank you. Thanks for listening and until next time, don't forget to dream big.